Country Podcast. Interviews with singers and songwriters from yesterday and today. Visit hotcountrypodcast.com for information on sponsors that make this show possible. Here's your host of the Hot Country Podcast, Chris McKay. And welcome to another edition of the Hot Country Podcast. Hey, to hear this podcast with the music that's talked about, be sure to listen to Long Neck Lounge Radio. It's available at thelongnecklounge.com. My guest today for this podcast is singer, songwriter, entertainer, and a man that knows what serving those that serve us really means. It's country artist Michael Peterson next on the Hot Country Podcast. And I am honored to welcome to the microphone of the Hot Country Podcast, Mr. Michael Peterson. How are you, sir? Great. I'm doing really great, Chris. Thank you for asking. How are you doing? I'm upright. I'm mobile. I'm blessed. So I, <laughs> I, you know what? I got the trifecta today. And, yeah, good. Uh, so just to clarify, we're recording this in July of uh, 2021. Shows are opening up and craziness abounds. But I bring this up just so we know where we are in the timeline, but I have to tell you a little backstory, if you don't mind. You were entering into the country world in 97 as I was leaving the country world. So Uh, after 25 years, it was time for me to move on. We opened up the outreach program. There were just so many things that we were doing. But the one thing I have to tell you, Michael, is I was your number one fan from your debut release. When I first heard the tune From Here to Eternity, uh, I would have bet a bottom dollar, you, sir, were going to be the number one wedding song around the world. Had I known 22 years later, I would still be hearing that song at weddings and processionals. Amazing. It didn't surprise wow. me, but I was amazed. And this is one of those stories where you always get freebies in radio. You could not talk to a DJ without opening up the trunk of his car. And there were CDs and promos and T-shirts and bumper stickers. I had to actually go out and buy your CD. So that, <laughs> so that has to tell you something. But my goodness, what's it like some 20 years later when asked to do so, still sing out, drink, swear, steal, and lie? There's a sense of appreciation and gratitude. That's probably the most prominent emotion. You know, I, I think there's some there's some pride there. You know, you're proud of what what you were a part of, but you know, the pride factor was probably stronger in the beginning. And as you reflect on it over the decades, you realize that you know, an awful lot of really talented people, you know, didn't didn't weren't fortunate enough to have that kind of success. And so, on some level, you can't take credit for it. Like in the, in the, in the global scheme of it, things, you know, yeah. y- you can, you can say, Hey, I contributed, co-wrote it and I sang it and, you know, I got out there and worked to promote it. And really it's the biggest feeling. And I think for me, the most appropriate feeling is just a feeling of gratitude. Like it just puts a smile on my face that people still like that music from here to eternity drinks were still in lie when the bartender cries. I mean, these are songs that all these years later, people say are some of their favorite songs, you know, and you just feel grateful, you know, and you feel joy. Uh, I, I feel joy when I have a chance to play it, those songs for people now still, and people are singing along or they're hearing it for the first time and they're going, oh, and then makes them smile or makes them feel something. So just really a lot of gratitude. Is what I feel. Well, you you mentioned a couple of the songs that you say you have gratitude for, but you can't forget 
uh, Too Good to Be True. That was also a, just a favorite of mine. So you Oh, were... well, thanks. That was a gro- really a groundbreaking record uh, in the sense that the the rhythmic structure of the, the that song, that recording, that kind of a hip-hop feel with a country lyric and chord changes and a country theme had never really been done before uh, with a hit record. There may have been some people that were maybe doing it that, that I'm not aware of. You know, it was really the first hit record or the second, I guess, depending on, you know, Shania Twain had a record that came out that had a similar kind of a blend of uh, feels. But it was, a, it was a groundbreaking record nonetheless, whether it was the first or the second. And uh, that, that feels fun, you know. And, and again, that's one of those songs. A guy that I co-wrote it with, Gene Pastilli, uh, God rest his soul, you know, was just a classic American songwriter. He wrote Sunday Will Never Be the Same, you know, when he was 18 years old. Uh, working in the Brill Building in New York. So, I mean, you know, Spanking Our Gang had a huge number one worldwide hit with that song. And, and you know, he wrote Too Gone for Too Long for Randy Travis, which was, a, you know, ASCAP Song yep. of the Year. Um, you know, so he, he produced Jim Croce. He was one of the founders of Manhattan Transfer. I mean, it's a guy that really had done a lot in his career and had become a mentor and a friend of mine. And when I ever hear that, that lyric, I just, I see his gift in that and it makes me smile because we became such dear dear friends one of the things that the listeners know about me is that i'm a real big fan of country songwriters and especially those that really go outside the box and then bring it back into the circle i know that sounds like a weird phrase but it's so i get it yeah yeah, so i mean mac mcanally was one where you would hear one blend and then the very next song you'd go mac wrote that it was just yeah. that ability to to bring that together. Again, when you buy a CD and you stick it in the car and you listen to all the songs over and over and over again, one of my favorite songs, and I'm very sorry it never did release that I know of, was the duet you did with Travis Tritt, and it's my favorite tune of all time. I finally passed the bar. Oh, and that's I, great. Yeah, and I know it was just a fun, tongue-in-cheek kind of tune, yeah. But I tell you, there was some really creative writing in there, and one of them that always kind of caught my eye, and, and I'm going to paraphrase here. I, it was like, uh, I, I never dreamed the neon night school would yeah. ever be so hard. Yeah. And boy, can I relate to that with some of the people I've hung out with over the years. Yeah. They, <laughs> these guys all need a working man's PhD from Aaron Tippin, and they also deserve to get the night school passing there in the bar. Yeah, so, yeah, of course. So yeah. it all kind of comes together. Um, out of all the songs uh, that you have written or co-written, do you have a favorite? Is there a number one that if somebody said, hey, Michael Peterson, play the one song you love the most? I, I would have to say no. There's not one favorite, but but there's a handful of favorites. Uh, and 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 you know the interesting reflection on that for me is that probably most of those in that handful are songs that people have never heard. And I've written a lot of songs between 1997, 98, 99. I mean that's 22 yeah. years ago, you know. And I've written a lot of songs over the last 22 years. A lot, a lot of people don't know that, you know, when I left major labels and, and the spotlight that that inherently carry, carries with it, um, that I continued to make records. I, I've made 18 albums in my in my career, and uh, 10 of them, maybe 11 of them have been in the last, you know, 20 years. 
but people don't know about it because it wasn't being promoted by a major label. Got you. But the, a lot of people don't realize how eclectic you are, not only in your writing, but in the music that you actually produce with others. I mean, you've done basically every genre of music, correct? Well, you know, I've written songs that have been recorded, uh, you know, by Hall of Famers and, and Grammy winners uh, in seven different genres of music. Yeah. So that's that I think is a reflection of my love for songwriting and my sense that a great song can usually find a home in a lot of different genres. You know, uh, and I have availed myself towards writing with people that are outside of the typical, like, let's write a country song way of thinking. Mm -hmm. So though that has opened uh, some real opportunities for my songs to be heard outside of country. And, you know, uh, after all these years, I'd have to say, you know, I, I really think of myself not as a country singer or a country artist. I really just think of myself as a, as a, as a writer and as an artist and as a singer. And I've been fortunate to have hits in country music, but a, a lot of, people that are not country music fans would appreciate the music that I've made. Sure. And, and so to me, that's not so much a declaration. Like I'm not saying I'm not country. I'm just saying that, that there's been so many people over the years that are not country fans that have appreciated what I've done that I've, I really have come to the place of, of thinking of myself more in a more universal sense than that, that my music has an appeal to people that love, you know, well-crafted songs memorable melodies that that have you know a meaning to them and that that can go really everywhere from adult contemporary to americana country yeah. folk you know the, you know just love i love great songs i um i'm always interested how somebody can take somebody's as you said a craft and and write a song and then another artist will take it i hate to use that phrase that you hear on all the tv shows where oh you made that your own but it yeah. really does carry a lot of weight when you, yeah. um, I, I remember I was at an event, uh, it was a, a wedding, and during the processional, the, the guitarist was playing this very pretty melodic sound as the bride made her way in. And it was one of those things that kind of haunted me. It was like, what the heck is that song? Couldn't remember, yeah. you know. So uh, after the wedding, um, I, I did go up to the musician and I said, can you tell me what song you were playing at the processional? And he laughed and he said, sound familiar? And I was like, yes, and it was haunting. Yeah. He had done a completely different rendition of the theme song from The Price is Right. Oh, isn't and that hilarious? And I love know, that. See, that's, that's beautiful creativity right there. <laughs> it was one of those things where I stood there, my jaw hit the floor, and then yeah. playing it back in my head, I realized, oh my God, that was yeah. the theme from The Price is Right. But yeah, somebody yeah. I can, love that story. Yeah, and people, and in the same way with you, I have to tell you, I have got some pretty eclectic likes in country music. You could, I can hear something most people don't hear, or I can bring people into that sound and say, hey, listen to this for just a moment. And one of the things I learned, uh, I, I was talking with Jeff Carson about his first song, which was Yeah, Buddy. And it was one of those songs that never broke the top 60, but we just played the hell out of it on the radio station. The listeners loved it. I loved it. It was just one of those things where 
you can hear where that's going to go. And one yeah. of the artists that you worked with, and I'd like to see if you got some story behind it, was somebody a lot of people don't know by name, Robert Ellis Oral. And you had the opportunity to work with him, and I hear a story here that he's the one that told you to go off and try to get a recording contract. First of all, Robert Ellis Oral is, for me, you know, hands down, the most talented artist, writer that I ever worked with closely. Amen. In um, this guy, uh, you you know, this guy had songs falling out of his pockets. When, when I first, when I, I mean, literally, like I remember when I first started working with Robert, he was signed to a publishing deal, I think with BMG. And they used to call him, his nickname around the offices at BMG was R because his, his initials are REO. Right. Okay. So they used to call him REO Speedwriter. So Speedwriter, got it. Right. Because he would write, like this guy would write four or five songs in a day. Amazing. This is, and, and, and not just, you know, not just lousy songs. I mean, you know, really, really clever. So Robert and I became, got to know each other because I was, I don't want to bore your audience with too long of a story, but when I, when I was uh, living in Seattle, my, one of my first trips to Nashville, uh, I met this guy who was a executive vice president of uh, publishing at BMG. And he asked me to come to his office. I met him in a Shoney's. I was standing at the salad bar. and <laughs> He walked up to me and asked me who I was. And he gave me his card and he said, you know, come see me. So um, I showed up at his office with my guitar thinking I was going to play some songs for him. And as I reached for my guitar case, he said, no, I don't want, I don't want you to play any music for me. I'm like, to myself, I'm thinking, <laughs> what? <laughs> okay. what? Like, why am I here? And basically what he said to me was, you know, how often are you here in town? And I said, well, you know, I, it's my second time here in a couple of years. And he said, well, if you want anybody in this town to take you seriously, you're going to have to be here a lot more often. Ah. And he said, if you'll come, if you can, you know, start showing up around here a lot more often and show me you're serious, you know, I'll see if I can help you. So essentially, uh, I went home and I decided that I needed to get there a lot more often. So uh, over the next almost three years, I went a week a month to Nashville from Seattle. Mm. And and uh, and during those three years and that week a month that I went, um, you know, I began meeting people. Right. Sure. And, and I would go I would go just hang out at all the songwriter haunts and just open mics and all of those things and, and just listen. Cause I, I wanted to understand the room I was in before I started playing my cards, because I just thought, you know, you could play the wrong card here. And I think you're good enough and you're not. And so anyway, so I took my time over two, three years and went a week a month, learned a lot, met a lot of people. And one of the people I met was a guy named Pat Finch and Pat was a, a A&R guy uh, at EMI music publishing and so, you know, long story short, Pat and I met and Pat uh, wanted to sign me to a music publishing deal. So um, I ended up not signing that deal, which is a whole other story for another time. But because I had this relationship with Pat and Pat believed in me, Pat wanted to introduce me to Robert Ellis Oral, who was looking for an act to produce. Ah. And so uh, he introduced me to Robert. Robert and I met. We really hit it off. We wrote a song our first day together, and we were off to the races. And so, I don't know, a week or two, maybe a month into that process, 
don't remember exactly, but somewhere early in the process, he said to me, hey, I'd like to introduce you to another buddy of mine and, and see if he would be interested in us co-producing you. And so he introduced me to Josh Leo. And Josh, you know, had been the head of A&R for RCA Records. He produced tons of it. Like he produced Vision in the Dark for Alabama, right. had a bunch of number ones with them. Anyway, so those two guys together, uh, those guys were both a force in the community. Leaders had relationships. So, uh, you know, through Josh, I ended up getting a publishing deal at Warner Chapel. Well, then I had, you know, a major publisher, two major producers uh, began to advocate for me to get a record deal. So they started setting up meetings with record companies. And that's sort of, that's, you know, a, a brief journey through how I ended up with a record deal. And it was, you know, I, at that point it was 2000, let's see, it was 1997 when I got my deal. And at that point I had been working towards getting a deal probably since uh, 84 <laughs> overnight success. Were you right? So yeah, but when, it, <laughs> so my point is that when it happened, it happened really quickly, but it was a long journey getting there. You know, I started off in gospel music, you know, right. Writing for Denise Williams production company and the management deal with them and made some gospel records that made some noise in that arena. And you made some custom albums along the way. And, sure. you know, it was just, it was this thing in me, that I wrote 20 to 25 songs a year, whether anybody liked them or not, whether anybody paid me or not. Like I was just completely passionate and I was eat up with it, as they would say in Nashville. Mm. And, uh, and you know, I grew and I grew and I grew and I grew, you know, I just, I was like that kid you throw in the pool and he can't swim and you pull him out and he jumps back in. That was me. Gotcha. I, I just was determined uh, that I had something to offer of value. And so a lot of lessons learned, a lot of baby steps forward, steps backward, baby steps forward, relationships. But it was that, I think that determination and that consistency of purpose and the joy that I had doing it that eventually led to, you know, some opportunities for me to succeed on a, on a higher level. Gotcha. And it's amazing the backbone uh, when people see somebody on their own, whether solo or heading up a band, they don't realize the hundreds of people that are behind them and 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 still there on the stage supporting them as yeah. as they make that journey. So it's been kind of fun to watch you. I mean, here you are. I know guys my age that are ready to retire, and they either rebuild old cars, they uh, they go play golf, uh, they go travel. I decided. I'm going to go travel, but I want to listen to the radio station that plays the music that I like. And I figured, right. well, if I can't find it, I'm going to, I'm going to make it. So, <laughs> I, love, so, I love that. So that's what I did in here. I was able to pick up the phone and, and call some old friends in the industry and say, hey, listen, come on the air with me, talk to me, uh, share with me what you're doing now. And it's so fun to bring those relationships back together. And then there's people like you, where I sat back and said, I've always wanted to talk to Michael Peterson Here's an opportunity to do so. I do have to ask, though. I mean, it was a, a number one song in the charts. It ranked, I believe, you could correct me if I'm wrong, it's like number three wedding song ever. 
Where did From Here to Eternity come from? Um, well, it started, I was living in Seattle. Everywhere I looked, I saw song titles. Everywhere I looked, I saw song ideas. I was just obsessed. That's the word I'm looking for. I, I was just obsessed with songwriting and growing as a writer. So one day I was uh, a video store, you know, back ah. when they used to have video stores. <laughs> sure. And just, you know, you know, looking to rent a, a VHS tape. And I saw uh, the Frank Sinatra Sure. movie from here to from here to eternity and i just thought oh that'd be that'd be an interesting song title of course i had no idea because i hadn't seen the movie that there actually was a song of that title already right that was written for the movie so i just wrote it down in my little songwriting book you know my notes so i fast forward i don't know a couple of years and i'm in a writing appointment with robert ellis oral he says what do you want to write about today and i said well you know robert there's a lot of wedding songs i've never heard anybody sing a song that was a proposal song mm -hmm. like the song that happens you're actually in the, in the moment of the proposal and i said wouldn't it be amazing if we could write a song that would help that guy or that girl who's making this proposition help them through that moment like could we write a song that that they would they would be able to use to just have the ring in their hand and their their loved one by them and, and just tell that person that they're going to propose to who doesn't know what the moment is about, just listen to this song. Right. And then at the end, the song will have basically popped the question, and then they can just hold the ring out, right? So that was our vision. And so we sat down to write it. It's really where it came from. And, you know, you have a lot of visions when you write songs. <laughs> uh, and few of them, like I said earlier, you just have gratitude because, you know, the idea that we could have this feeling, you know, and hope and that it would actually surpass our wildest dreams that it came true. You know, literally thousands and thousands and thousands of people have have found that song to be really an important key song for them. That even after all these years, I still get every month, I get a, a dozen emails from people saying they either want to use it or going to use it or did use it and remember it and love it and want to thank me. So, you know, that's one of those legacy pieces that you're just grateful for. I guess if you're going to be known for anything in the world, being the guy that put together the best wedding song, that's not a bad reputation to have. Well, it's a gift, and I receive it with gratitude. There you go. Number and it was it was your first and only number one. And which, well, it was the first. It was the first and only Billboard number one. Billboard. And number I think one. a lot okay. of times, you know, pe people. Uh, I think sometimes, you know, and it's yeah, it's a bit of a uh, a different perspective. Is that there are there are other charts around the world, <laughs> yes, you know. There are. <laughs> there's, there's CMT, you know, which is a force. Yeah. Um, there's there's charts in Europe. There's charts in Canada. So for me, I've actually had 14 number ones, or I shouldn't say 14 number one songs, but my songs have hit number one 14 times right. on various charts around the world. You know, uh, I've only had one number one Billboard. Right, chart, but I've had fourteen number ones, fourteen times my songs have hit number one on various charts. Everything from Gavin R and R, right, uh, CMT in the U.S. to uh, Hot Disc over in Europe. Uh, anyway, yeah. um, it's so, still you know, it's, 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 it's still it's, it's still it's, a claim it's, to yeah. fame. It's still, no, oh yeah, no, yeah. it's fun. And it's then, beautiful to say at a Billboard number one. That's a big deal. It is, and you were Male Artist of the Year, right, for Billboard in '97. I was. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I mean, if you can take the gratitude and and the honors and the accolades, 
those aren't bad ones to have. I've like oh, I said, no, they're beautiful. Yeah, yeah, I have I have met more artists in my lifetime that have never charted a number one song, but they're still some of the most recognizable. So I get the chart thing. I was in, in broadcasting. It was like, well, if we're not going to do Billboard, we're going to do Gavin. If we're not doing Gavin, we're doing R and R. And it was like everybody had a different way of ranking. I'm still yeah. going back to my old school, and that is the listener knows what they like, and they know what they yeah. want to hear. Again, I'll continue to program a radio station based on listener versus programmer. Right. I, I can't be well, influenced by the dollar, which yeah. it seems to be radio today, if you, the pay sure. and play and all the craziness. I love a good songwriter. I mean, you, you, you've mentioned Robert Ellis Oral. Uh, when he teamed up with Curtis Wright, that was a wonderful pairing. Uh, yeah. radio, radio didn't give them the accolades they needed. It was, but yeah. their music, we're still playing. They're recognizable yeah. and people like them. So we've done From Here to Eternity. Can't walk away from Drink, Swear, Steal, and Lie. Never a number one on Billboard. But that was, I mean, there wasn't a, I'm trying to remember during that time your song was You know released. the only reason why that song wasn't the number one on Billboard? There's only one reason. What's that? Well, there was one station in the country that wouldn't play it. See, that's and what's wrong with it. And they, and they wouldn't play it because uh, this, and, and I respect this, everybody has a right to their, to their standards. There was a program director at a station in Arizona that uh, had a, as his standard, his ethic was that they would never play songs that had a curse word in it. And Drink, Swear, Still, and Lie uh, has the word hell in it. Yeah. And, and the word hell was used specifically. It wasn't used as a, a sort of filler word. Right. You know, there'd be hell to pay. Right. So it wasn't used in the context of, of a curse, of a curse. You know, it wasn't like, oh, hell, or something like that. It was, there'd be hell to pay. I never thought of that as a, a way that you would use it as a curse. But anyway, for whatever reason, this guy, uh, for his personal reasons, said he would never play a song that had a curse word in it. Mm. And so because of that one station, Drink mm. Swear was not a number one. because that, And we got beat out that week by Garth and I forget who else, but... Um, it, you know what? It's it's a shame because it was it it was definitely a a number one song in in my books. Well, I mean, in impact, was, I mean, it's it's had two and a half million airplays. Yeah, I mean, this is um, a good... it's 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 the big it's the it's the most spun record of my career. It's bigger, like uh, from here to eternity, somewhere like a hundred one point six or one point seven million. Drinks where it's almost two and a half million airplays. Michael, you live in Las Vegas, so. If if you were to take a look regionally at the music that's hot in in the Southwest versus what's hot right now in the Northeast, two different animals, right? And, and to have one guy dictate from New York City what everybody should be playing, I just I don't I I don't get that. So I hope more and more, if <laughs> if, if, if if people don't I'm know, I'm totally who, with you, man. Like if you were if you go to Alaska, you don't want to hear the same songs you hear if you're in New Orleans. Exactly. Exactly. Shouldn't it reflect the culture that it's in? It should be regional. When I'm the only, and and I and I mean this with all humbleness and sincerity, I think I was the only guy playing Chris Ledoux on the radio before anybody knew who Chris Ledoux was, and then to get him to get recognized by Garth Brooks, awesome. That just got him the notoriety he deserved. But my local people here. 
these are the rodeo guys. These are the ones that know who Chris Ledoux is. These are the people right. that want to listen to the music and go dancing Friday and Saturday night at the rodeo dance. So right. why wouldn't you play it? Except the other country station in town is, oh, no, we're not going to play that. He's not on the charts. So I think you have to listen to what people want to listen to. And you, sir, your long list of music. I, again, I admire you beyond uh, the, the professional side. I, I admired oh, you, you as a, as a fan. Um, I love drink, swear, steal, and lie. you can say hell anytime that you want to in my book. <laughs> um, from here to eternity, the, it's, it, you know what? Probably long after you and I are both gone... That's still going to be used as a wedding song. See, that's such a wonderful legacy to have. And it then, is. It's beautiful thing. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. Now, what about Too Good to Be True? What made that jump out at you that you'd want to uh, add that to the to the CD and then release it? You know, that song started. I was I was on the treadmill at the YMCA getting a workout, and uh, there were TVs up in the YMCA that were, you know, that were playing uh, MTV. You know, I'm listening, sitting there sort of trapped listening to MTV and, uh, you know, couldn't change a channel. And uh, TLC, a song by TLC came on. I thought, wow, I, said, I really like that beat. And, uh, and I thought, this thought popped into my head. I wonder if anybody's ever written a country song that has like a hip-hop kind of groove. I could blended those two things. I wonder what that would be like. Mm. So, uh, you know, within a day or two of that, I kind of had a, an idea of what, you know, what, what I thought it should be. I didn't have a, didn't have a title yet. And I went to write a uh, writing appointment with my friend, Gene Pastilli. You know, that's what, that's what came out. We started, we started just, you know, really we had no, we didn't have a, uh, a melody. We didn't have a lyric idea. We didn't have a title. We just sat down together and started playing around with this groove, and that's what showed up. You, you don't get it, and you're not going to get it anymore, <laughs> right? Lines like lines like that in the song would put a smile on my face, and I loved the feel of it. It was the kind of thing that made you want to dance, and it was something different. And I always believed that in, in a room full of people with hats, be the person not wearing a hat, right? Right. Right. So if you want to stand out, do something different. And so, uh, you know, as we began to piece together which songs should be on the album um that was one that really stuck out to me as just being different very catchy as my friends used to say as catchy as a cold <laughs> yeah and, uh, that would work and which may not be appropriate in covid era but um you know it just it just sticks with you you know and uh people liked it it was ground you know it just it just got people's attention the songs of mine that i've written that people have loved the most often come back to themes that have something to do with drinking right well, it's a country you know, song. Yeah, right. <laughs> Steve Goodman summed that up best. Right. <laughs> and I, I don't have, you know, an alcoholism in my family. I don't, I'm, I've never been a, I've never had a problem with that. Right. So it's a bit, a bit of a head scratcher to me sometimes why, why it showed up that way. But I suppose it's a reflection of the fact that, that it's a, it's a good device, if you will. To, to write about, to speak into people's lives, it's a good topic. Maybe it's a better word than device. Sure. Uh, it's, it's, just a, it's just a topic that's rife with opportunities because there's, there's just so much emotion around that, you know? You know, the, probably, I guess what I'm trying to say is summed up by a great quote that I read once. It said, 
they they talked about my drinking, but they never talked about my thirst. Right. Great line. Right? Great line, by the way. Yeah, that's a great line. And uh, you know, writing appointment at EMI with a, a woman named Hunter Davis, and sure. she pulled out a she pulled out a an article from the New York Times that was uh, uh, interviewing a man who who was the owner of a bar that was being uh, closed. The bar was be, being closed, shut down, you know, after 50 years or something because of some kind of, you know, the things that happen. You own sure. a bar, and, and be, but you don't own the lease, right? Somebody wants to turn the building into high rises or something, and so you lose your lease. Mm-hmm. So it was interviewing this guy. It was about the gentrification of, of this part of New York City. And so this guy, uh, it said in the interview, you know, it said that this you know, it really was such a sad thing. It made this guy cry. And so Hunter's reading me the article and we looked at each other and we both kind of laughed and said, man, you know, you know, you're in trouble with the bartender cries. And we both started laughing about it. Yeah. Uh, suddenly we looked at each other when we said it and it was like the big aha went off and we went, oh, my goodness, that that's a killer song title. <laughs> yeah. so, I can see the light bulb over your head as, yeah, as the so, line comes out. Yeah. So so we wrote, you know, we wrote a version of it. And, uh, of course, we were. You know, I was maybe, I don't know, a month or two away from the making of the album. And I, I thought this song was uh, a candidate. But, you know, the funny thing I realized was, you know, when you hear the chorus for the first time and you hear that hook for the first time, it's like it floors you. Sure. But it's like a joke in a sense, in the sense that, um, you know, when you hear a joke, if you hear the joke the second time, it doesn't have the same impact on you. Right. Because, because it, you know, it just... It says you're basically repeating the same thing. And I just had this feeling in my craw that said, you know, it's not going to work as well if the chorus is identical every time. So over that month, I think about the only thing I focused on prior to the album was trying to make uh, the second chorus and the third chorus all unfold so that the story would continue to unfold so that every time you heard you know you're in trouble when the bartender cries. It would have a new slight nuance to it or context. Sure. And so it was, I don't know, it was maybe the week before uh, we went in to, re- to make the album that I went to my producers, Robert and, and Josh, and said, I think I got it. And I played it for them. And they they loved it, you know. And they said, oh, I think you got it. So, I mean, it was it was just sort of right up to the wire. And it was this passion that I had to, to try to help it not just repeat itself over and over again, but to take it somewhere. And I think that's part of why people love that song to this day. Nothing wrong with a great storyteller. And Michael, you fit that mold perfectly. You, you took it from beginning and you kind of left the door open as well. So it was a wonderful, a wonderful release and uh, don't mind playing it. It's a great song. So uh, again, a feather in your cap. You use the word that I use all the time. If, if you were to follow me, my personal page on Facebook, you will see the hashtag blessed or hashtag gratitude. You and your wife receive so many accolades for your service to those that serve us. So I want to publicly say thank you for your service and thank you for continuing to do what you do for the USO, for our veterans, and for those that are actively serving. It, from my heart and my wife, Mary, 
Um, uh, I, I don't know if you're aware, we do a thing called Military Mondays. We have been yeah. giving to, uh, our slogan is serving those that serve us. Thank you for what you do and explain to the audience what it is you do. Well, thank you so much. Uh, and thank you for you and your wife for all you've done to assist service members. You know, in, in a nutshell, um, when 9-11 happened, um, I wanted to, to help some way, but I was too old to join the military. And so I just, I right around that time, I heard this great quote from Teddy Roosevelt that said, all of us as Americans have an obligation to do what we can with what we have wherever we are. Amen. And, uh, and I just thought, well, I'm a singer and a songwriter and an entertainer. Maybe I could use that somehow. So I just told my agent, you know, um, if there's an opportunity to do something with the military, you know, I don't need to get paid. Just, you know, tell me and I'll go. An opportunity opened up for me to do an event at Fort Campbell. Uh, they didn't have a budget. I went anyway while I was there. The vice chief of staff of the army was there. His assistant at the end asked me for my card. A week later, I got a call from the director of strategic operations or strategic communications for the for the army and said, can you come to D.C.? We want to meet with you and talk about some things that we might do together. So that was where it started for me. And uh, over the course of the next four years or so, um, I just, you know, said to them, look, I don't know a lot about army culture, but if you'll let me, you know, hang around, I'll, I'll learn. Right. So in the process of, you know, doing two events and, and doing, you know, presentations and singing and entertaining on behalf of the U S army. Yeah. I just made a lot of, uh, really wonderful friendships and relationships. Cause, cause I wasn't a contractor. I wasn't looking, you know, to make money off of it. So a lot of doors opened sure. up to me and that, that led to me meeting this woman, uh, who's now my wife, I, I, essentially she was working for the chairman of the joint chiefs. So a lot of, just a lot of doors opened up for me because I was just willing to serve. Sure. And so that was really the spirit of it. And, you know, as you go forward, uh, to now, uh, my wife is a survivor of the Pentagon attacks at nine 11. She yeah. had post-traumatic stress and in, in the heels of all of that, she became a subject matter expert in, in helping people with post-traumatic stress because she learned how to heal herself. You know, to this day, every year, there's probably anywhere from a dozen to as many as 40 service members or are looking for assistance in the area of post-traumatic stress. And my wife is is really a subject matter expert and a thought leader in the area of dealing with those issues uh, with a non-pharmaceutical approach. Ah. And so my, my wife speaks all over the world on this as a subject matter expert, and I go along with her and, and do what I've always done with the military, which is express my gratitude, share music that's uplifting, that is relevant from a messaging standpoint. So, I mean, that's really what, that's what we do is we work with, with veterans organizations, the Institute for Veterans and Military Families and Syracuse University. Uh, we do a lot of things with them helping uh, veteran entrepreneurs to start new businesses. So, you know, what do I have to do with that? Well, I, I go to these events and I bring music and entertainment. My wife brings her, her abilities as a public speaker and as a subject matter expert at PTS. Sure. And, uh, and we do these things around the world and that's, that's really what we end up doing. So if anybody is listening to your show that says, well, I'd like to know more about how to deal with post-traumatic stress in a non-pharmaceutical way, they could easily find my wife at this able vet. So T H I S 
able vet v-e-t disablevet.com um, and that's my wife's website and you can learn about what she does and, and we don't do it for money it's not something that we do to pay our bills sure it's something that we do my wife's received a lot of grants so we do a lot to help people get tools and resources uh, that need help that are having trouble sleeping having trouble dealing with with you know finding a new normal Michael Peterson, as a fan, thank you. As a colleague, thank you. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time to chat with us here on the Hot Country Podcast. God bless the both of you. Thank you for your service to our country and our countrymen, and it's been an honor. Well, Chris, thank you for your service and your wife's service to our country and and our countrymen, and I look forward to meeting you in person when, when you come here for NFR. Thanks for listening, and be sure to visit HotCountryPodcast.com for information on sponsors and interview opportunities. The Hot Country Podcast, available everywhere you download podcasts and is aired on country radio across North America.